it's a delight for me to welcome you all here this evening to this public lecture which is organised by the RSA and the University of Bath jointly. We've been doing these joint lectures between the RSA and the University of Bath now for about four years and this must be the 14th or 15th of the lectures that we've had. I have to say that we would never have thought of doing these lectures had it not been for Sir Donald Maitland, who said to us, it's about time that you guys at the university got together with the RSA and did some things that people are interested in. Never mind all this research. You know, bring people to the university who have really important things to say about politics, about policy, about the way our lives are being shaped. Not simply on the basis of research or theory, but because they have seen it and done it and been there themselves. Um, it's an enormous delight for me this evening to say that we've captured such a speaker for you. Um, now, I, I'm not allowed to tell you about him, and the reason is that I know him rather well. And I've agreed that on that basis, I really shouldn't say what I know. Instead, I'm going to hand over to Gerald Millward Oliver, member of the uh, RSA, who will introduce our speaker. Gerald. I wish I knew. I don't know the details, so all I know is, the, is, is what I find publicly. But uh, thank you, Glynis. A warm welcome to you, and uh, my thanks to the University of Bath for once again holding, uh, hosting this public lecture in association with the RSA. Now, for more than 250 years, the RSA has driven ideas, innovation, and social change through an ambitious program of projects, events, and lectures. Our work, for those who don't know it, is supported by 27,000 fellows around the world, an international network truly of influencers and innovators from every field and background. And so we're passionate about ideas and communicating those ideas simply and to as broad an audience as possible. I've no doubt that you will find our speaker this evening will hit the mark on all those points. General Sir Rupert Smith was educated at Halebury, Imperial Service College, later at Sandhurst. He enlisted in 1962, was commissioned into the Parachute Regiment, served in Eastern South Africa, Arabia, the Caribbean, Europe, Malaysia, etc. As a Major General, he commanded the British 1st Armoured Division during the First Gulf War, 1990-91. He became First Assistant Chief of Defence Operations and Security at the UK Ministry of Defence in 1992, and while there was intimately involved in the UK's development of its strategy in Bosnia-Herzegovina. In 1995, he was commander of UNPROFOR in Sarajevo and was responsible for breaking the siege of the city by creating the UN Rapid Reaction Force and ultimately bringing the war to an end there. From 96 to 98, he was General Officer Commanding Northern Ireland and his final assignment before retiring was as Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe and NATO from 98 to 2001, covering NATO's Operation allied force during the Kosovo War. He comes from a family known for its sense of adventure. His father, a New Zealander, was a Battle of Britain pilot, and his great-uncle was one of the few survivors 
of Captain Scott's ill-fated expedition to the Antarctica. So there's a man who knows a bit about adventure, I suspect. Now that extraordinary French diplomat Talleyrand, who survived everything, it seems, is attributed with the observation that war is far too serious a matter to be entrusted to the generals. Given the history of armed intervention in the past few years, it may be argued that perhaps war is far too serious a matter to be entrusted to politicians. Rupert Smith's landmark book, The Utility of Force, which has given us tonight's title, is a remarkable achievement. It provides a perceptive analysis of the development of warfare between the time of Napoleon and the end of the Cold War, before exploring why the Western Allies and the Russians have failed to achieve the results intended in military engagements over the past 15 years. The answer, he asserts, is to radically change our approach to armed intervention and in particular to change the way that our institutions structure their thinking and their actions. A review of his book by an eminent American professor in the Washington Post began with a comment that the British Army, and I quote, has a higher quotient of sophisticated leaders who have thought hard about the profession of arms and are more intellectually equipped to hold their own with civilian leaders than most militaries, including quite possibly our own. He continued, one such is General Rupert Smith, who has written one of the most important books on modern warfare in the last decade. We in the US would be better off if the United States had a few more generals like him. Ladies and gentlemen, General Sir Rupert Smith. Uh, well, good evening, and thank you very much, and thank you, Glynis, for keeping my secrets safe. <laughs> At least so far. <laughs> Um, uh, this is a very large subject I'm going to talk about, and I uh, am going to assume knowledge. Uh, in return, I will try and answer your questions as comprehensively as I can, and please ask them as widely as you wish to, um, in case I've, I've not explained something properly. It is my contention, argued in the, in the book, that the nature of our operations today and in the future are fundamentally different to the nature of those in the past and for which our institutions have developed to conduct successfully. And I call this form or model of war, war amongst the people in contrast to the past, which I call industrial war. The essential difference is that military force is no longer used to decide the battle, but to create a condition in which the strategic result is achieved by other means. The strategic object being to alter the opponent's intentions rather than to destroy him. As a result, we do not move in that nice linear process of peace, crisis, war, resolution, peace, that our institutions have evolved to manage and conduct successfully. We now live in a world of continual confrontations and conflicts, in which the military acts in the conflict support the achievement of the desired outcome to the confrontation 
by other means. Now, when I talk of institutions, I am referring to the institutions of governments, whether they be those of Whitehall or the District of Columbia or any other capital, whether they be parliamentary or administrative, and whether they are national or intergovernmental. I refer to the executive institutions, the armed forces, the diplomatic service, the intelligence services, and so on. And the multinational organisations we form from them, like NATO. And I refer to the defence industries. And to the institutional relationships, the processes and authorities that link them all together in one way or another, temporarily or permanently, into a whole. I am not, except perhaps in the most general terms, referring to particular equipments or organisations. Consider the world of art. The Impressionists were trained as realists. They had the same paintbrushes, the same canvas, the same palette. They looked at the same view, but they had a completely different idea of the outcome. And they used the same tools in a different way and produced a different result. And what I am talking about is such a change in our understanding of the utility of force. We have to learn to be impressionists, not realists. And I didn't choose the example by mistake, as you will learn. The main reason as to why we must have this profound change in understanding of the use of military force, rather than in the first instance considering the tools or the equipments, results from the shift from industrial war to wars amongst the people. In industrial war, we set out to achieve advantage by having superior equipments in superior numbers. We knew or had decided on the worst case, opponent, and we matched our inventories accordingly. Tactically, the way these means were used was always important, as it was occasionally strategically. But in the new paradigm, in war amongst the people, where the opponent is often formless, operating deliberately below the threshold of the utility of force as we would wish to use it, amongst the people, and with objectives to do with altering intentions rather than in destruction, the way we use our equipment is important strategically in the theatre and in the battle itself. If this wasn't the case, we wouldn't be worried about cluster bombs. A little history. Industrial war stems from the Napoleonic Wars and grew to have certain characteristics. 
there was an understanding that military force can be used strategically to achieve your political purpose directly by force of arms. There was conscription in one form or another. Young men are called up to a period of military service and are then placed on the reserve. Normally, these reservists are assigned to reserve formations that are to be mobilised at a time of crisis. Mobilised and crisis should be understood as to be written in inverted commas. (coughs) A mobilisation process that to initiate requires a decision of the country's leaders, or rather the state's leaders, to go to war, exists and stops civil life in its tracks. And there was this linear process that I've described, peace, crisis, war, to manage that mobilisation process. I think we called it the Queen's Order, as my memory anyhow. There's a defence industrial complex, primarily at the, at the time in the 19th century, of shipbuilding and the development of guns and rifles. And a Ministry of Defence, or something very similar, is created with a general staff below it, charged with preparing the country for war. Underline preparing. And this institution works to the following logic. To win a war and achieve our political purpose directly by force of arms, we must harness the full power of the state. To do this requires us to mobilise all our resources. And to do this is to stop civil life. And so it must be done at the last possible moment. But to mobilise requires a plan, or at least a strategic direction. And to make a plan, or give a strategic direction, there must be an enemy. An enemy that has some form and substance, often called the threat. And so we will prepare for war against that threat. Usually, this was our nearest, biggest neighbour. And the plan prepared must seek to defeat the opponent as quickly as possible. So we could get back to that civil life that we just said, said, told everyone we were defending. And over time, we learnt to do this very well. And we learnt that to do this very well, we must attack the people. The moral, political and economic and industrial base of our opponent, as well as his armed forces in the field. And by 1945, we had developed this so well that we didn't need to attack his forces anymore. We could destroy his cities and his country in one or a few blows. And it became socially useless. 
We had learnt to fight these wars so well with the ultimate capacity to attack the people with the V weapons and the atomic bomb. The atomic bomb, the proven weapon of mass destruction, ended the utility of industrial war. And the reason was that the best defence against a weapon of mass destruction is not to mass. Which is why we put our weapons of mass destruction in a submarine and hide it under the sea. And since you can disperse your armed forces, but not your people in the cities, then the only useful target are the people. Now just hold all that in mind, and we'll go back over the same period of time as the antithesis to industrial war is developing at the same time. It makes its appearance in the Napoleonic Wars. The Spanish people waged a guerrilla war, a small war, against the French forces occupying their country. The basic tactic of the guerrilla is to engage only on his terms in the ambush and the raid, to avoid being pinned down in a fight for ground, and to depend on the people for support, both physical and moral. In short, to only engage in tactical acts. The ideas of the anarchists and the communist revolutionaries added to this basic tactical idea of guerrilla war. They produced a generic strategy, or how to use these tactical acts coherently and in aggregate to achieve your political purpose. And this generic strategy has three strands, uh, each separate but closely related to the other, and together, woven together in the particular circumstances, produces the strategy for that particular affair. The three strands are these. The strategy of provocation. Here, one seeks to provoke an overreaction, so as to paint the opponent in the colours of the bully, the oppressor, the tyrant, and thereby gain sympathy, support, credibility for one's cause, and recruits. One also tests the tolerance and discovers the level at which your opponent will react, so as to operate safely below that threshold. Any of you here brought up young children will recognise the strategy of provocation immediately. As you will, the propaganda of the deed. Here, one establishes one's importance as he hurls the yoghurt across the kitchen. You have to take me seriously. I am me. I do not want this pap, etc., etc. That is what he's telling you. You have to be taken seriously or more yoghurt hits the wall. You have to be treated with And with this publicity, so one's cause achieves publicity and importance, and by existing, becomes credible. And this, too, attracts recruits and support. And finally, and in bringing up children, you will recognise this at all as well, 
the erosion of the will. All right, watch the video. By operating to create a continuous and steady drain of men and resources with no prospect of a satisfactory cessation of the conflict, the will of those opposed is eroded. Minor concessions are granted. Six, um, little successes are gained serially and banked. And they can be built on incrementally. Now, in guerrilla war, the key component is the people. As Mao said, the people are to the guerrilla as the sea is to the fish. The guerrilla forces, such as those of Spain, depended on the people, and as long as the opponent could be defined as the French or the other, this made for an expectation of loyalty, or at least tacit support, which could be developed by the strategies of propaganda and the um, provocation. Now, if we examine revolutionary war, in which the governance of the state is at issue, the people are common to both parties. The government, the police and the army or the security forces and the people are all on one side. And on the other, there's the revolutionary leaders, the, uh, their promise of a better life, the terrorist or guerrilla groups and the same people. In other words, the will of the people, that element that is common to both, is the strategic objective in revolutionary war. That's Mao, Trotsky, Ho, Jap, in a nutshell. Don't bother to read any more. You've heard it from me. So... Short of coercing their will in a Stalinesque program of terror and mass deportations, this must be won by means and in a way other than the direct use of military force. For sure, at the tactical level, military force will have a part to play in order to provide for the deeds of provocation and propaganda and erosion of the will. The revolutionary or activist is using force and must be countered and defeated. But, and this is the point, defeated in such a way that the military acts are coherent with the other measures to win the will of the people. And so to pull my two strands of history together, industrial war and its antithesis, we end World War II. And that is the point of synthesis of those two. And the synthesis is wars amongst the people. We end World War II where we could destroy the people, the government, in large measure the environment in one or a few massive blows. And in parallel, its antithesis has developed as a successful way of seizing the state from its government. And in our time, the two ideas have synthesized. But our institutions, developed to conduct industrial war, have not changed. 
and mark this, those of Vietnam or China who originated the ideas of revolutionary war and practiced it on becoming a state adopted the form and substance of the institutions of a state and ceased to be able to conduct revolutionary war. (coughs) Which it tells you why Fatah, Hamas and Hezbollah will not agree to hold the responsibilities of a state. Because the moment they do, they can no longer operate in wars amongst the people. So, instead of industrial war, in which the opponents set out with the primary objective to win the trial of strength, devoting all their forces and resources to destroying the opponent's capability to resist and thereby win the clash of wills, we have now war amongst the people. War amongst the people in which the primary objective is to win the clash of wills. In industrial war, the opponents seek to re- sought rather to resolve the political confrontation that was its cause directly by military force. The objectives for the use of military force in industrial war were hard and simple. They were expressed in words like take, hold, surrender, destroy, defeat. They all describe a desirable outcome of a trial of strength. In wars amongst the people, the strategic objectives are malleable and complex. They describe a condition in which, in which, um, about enabling and changing intentions. An example would be to create a safe and secure environment in Helmand province, I quote. In war amongst the people, military force does not resolve the confrontation directly. The the conflicts or forceful acts contribute to one or other side's efforts to win the clash of wills and thus decide the confrontation. So instead of a world in which peace is understood to be an absence of war and we move from one to the other in that linear fashion I've described, peace, crisis, war, etc., we are in this world of permanent confrontations within which nest conflicts like your hip joints in your pelvis. The conflict can be potential or actual. And as each of the two opponents in the confrontation seek to alter the other's intentions in that confrontation by conducting military acts in conflict, either directly or as some threat or other. Now I've said this, use these words, confrontations and conflicts, and I will explain what I mean. I do not use them as synonyms, as we frequently do in our organs of the press. 
and they are not synonyms. A confrontation occurs when two or more bodies in broadly the same circumstances are pursuing different outcomes. Political affairs of all stripes, national, international, are about resolving confrontations. But when one or other side cannot get their way and will not accept some rules or alternative outcome, they sometimes seek to use military force to get it. They turn to conflict. And as I've explained, in industrial war, we sought to get it directly by military force. Force was used strategically. However, in adopting conflict as the course of action, the side that is weak, if it is at all wise, does not play to the opponent's strengths, but rather follows that path of the guerrilla that I've described. Avoiding set battle, except on his own terms, and the operational or strategically decisive engagement, so as not to present the opponent with the opportunities to strike the mortal blow. He follows a generic strategy composed of those three strands I've described, so as to advance his position in the overall confrontation. And, or, he, he seeks to replicate the strength of his opponent, like North Korea or Pakistan or Iran, while still following that same generic strategy. Now, if you're very strong and have nuclear weapons, you have too much to lose in using them. But whether you have them or not, you have to find a way to exert your power to use your strength, which, isn't, which is more than just your military forces, of course. For as the philosopher Michel Foucault said, power is a relationship, not a possession. Finding the way to establish that relationship to advantage is the strategic question of our time. How and to what end do we apply force substrategically in the conflict so as to gain our strategic and political position in the overall confrontation and prevent our opponent from doing likewise. We are failing, ladies and gentlemen, to answer that question at the moment. At least, we haven't found the right answer to that question yet. Now, this form or paradigm of war, war amongst the people, has six defining trends. Now, I call them trends because uh, their magnitude, their impact, alters with the circumstances. And secondly, uh, although I will give you all six in a list, you mustn't understand them as being in a list. You must understand them as being written in a circle so that each one plays simultaneously on the other five. And only then can you begin to understand their effect in the particular circumstances. 
Now, the first trend I've started to discuss already, that the ends for which we deploy and employ military force are changing from the hard, simple objectives of industrial war to the malleable objectives of changing intentions, which is why I call them malleable. For example, the Korean War, where we changed our intentions when China intervened, because to do otherwise uh, was to go uh, and drop the atomic bomb. And we settled for a condition of a divided Korea, on or about the line the war started on, which, by the way, was where the last industrial war ended. And that condition has continued to the current day ever since. We have never resolved the confrontation. It might have not been nuclear anymore, but we haven't resolved the confrontation, and we changed our intentions. The Yom Kippur War in 1973 when Sadat's objective was to create a condition by military force in which the confrontation between Israel and the Egyptians over who had the Sinai was resolved to his advantage. So novel was this idea that it is one of, and certainly the major reason, why Israel's vaunted, correctly vaunted intelligence service was completely fooled by uh, this preparation. They saw it all. They saw the preparations. They could see everything. But because everything didn't have the capacity to get all the way to Beersheba, they decided it must be an exercise. Their whole interpretation was in terms of industrial war. He will come and take it back. The idea that the objective was to alter his position in a negotiation, the confrontation, was so out with their paradigm in which they were analysing what they were looking at that they decided it must be an exercise. And they did nothing. But a few short years after 1973, the Egyptians are back in the Sinai. And a bit after that, Sadat and Perez are shaking hands. Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, all give examples, regardless of the rhetoric at the time, of uh, the military being used to establish a condition, usually expressed as a safe and secure environment, or words to that effect, rather than to resolve the confrontation. A more topical recent example of this. Consider the events of last year, July and August 2006, as Israel and Hezbollah fought across the Israel-Lebanese border. Um, Consider the objectives that they said they were fighting for. Hezbollah is said to have, and is said rather than is said, Um, either uh, together or separately, that their aims were to take prisoners to bargain with, a tactical act to improve one's position in a confrontation. 
or to draw Israel into an attack on Lebanon, a condition to enhance Hezbollah's position in Lebanon by showing that they could defend successfully against Israel. And or to improve their position vis-à-vis Hamas, who you will recall had just taken a prisoner themselves down in Gaza. And or to further Iranian and Syrian objectives in their confrontations with Israel and the United States. None of those are industrial war type objectives. In all cases, Hezbollah was using military force to establish a condition to advantage. Israel, on the other hand, declared the attack by Hezbollah's military wing as an act of war and promised Lebanon a very painful and far-reaching response. In short, they saw themselves not at war with the state of Lebanon itself, but with the non-state actor Hezbollah. However, they wanted the Lebanese government to take responsibility for Hezbollah and control what went on in their state. In other words, to change their intentions. The Israeli cabinet authorised severe and harsh retaliation. And uh, the chief of staff said, if the soldiers are not returned, we will turn Lebanon's clock back 20 years. And a former commander, understand, closely briefed spokesman to the press, um, explained, Israel is attempting to create a rift between the Lebanese population and Hezbollah's supporters by exacting a heavy price from the elite in Beirut. The message is, if you want your air conditioning to work, you must pull your head out of the sand and take action towards shutting down Hezbollah. We can see, too, that they were setting conditional objectives. Namely, to get the Lebanese to deal with Hezbollah. However, these pronouncements were accompanied by others that were couched in the hard terms of industrial war. To destroy Hezbollah, to defeat the rocket attacks. And all of this gave an early hint of divided council in Tel Aviv. And as events unfolded, and the Lebanese were seen by Tel Aviv to be powerless, and the rockets still fell on Israelis' towns, and Hezbollah fought on, these objectives were adjusted to yet more conditional objectives, gaining a viable internationally guaranteed buffer zone, a better position in bargaining for the prisoners, to re-establish the deterrent effect of the Israeli defence forces, all conditional objectives, and perhaps you can now see why I call them malleable. Just play back the rhetoric of our own leaders as to what we're trying to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, and perhaps you too will see evidence of malleability. I give this range of examples to show that this trend has existed for a long time, and in most cases, although forces have been deployed strategically, force has only been employed 
sub-strategically. We tend to use the words deployment and employment as synonyms. I put it to you that they are not. And if your business is about killing people, then it's very important to understand the difference. The next trend is that we carry out these wars amongst the people as non-states. Usually, we the good guys are in some form of coalition and alliance. And the other guy refuses to be a state. Like Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, the IRA, ETA, etc. But these alliances, while they may appear formal at a political and strategic level, also occur in the theatre of operations. And they are not the same alliances. It is a different non-state grouping in the theatre of operations. Take Afghanistan. We, the good guys, are there as the US on their own, as NATO, another alliance within this theatre, the Afghans, various friendly militias, mostly left over from dining with the devil of the Northern Alliance when we bombed and bribed our way towards Kabul in 2002, and bits of the Pakistan security forces. And that's different again, that's at the theatre level. And then we're in another non-state grouping in Helmand province or in someone else's province or Kandahar or wherever. And yet our institutions bear no, have no capacity to handle that complex measure of relationships all of which are more or less confrontational because you none of you have the same objectives. And while these might be collaborative confrontations, they are still with different objectives. And this colours what you are capable of doing. The consequence of this is that all those institutional processes that I described, not least those of the law, are singularly unsuited to handle our current structures that we actually conduct operations with and in. The third characteristic, and the most obvious, is that warfare takes place amongst the people. Firstly, the objective is the will of the people. Secondly, the opponent, often operating to the tenants of the guerrilla, depends on the people for concealment, for support, moral and physical, and for information. And thirdly, the strategies of provocation and propaganda of the deed do not work if you don't have the people there. Uh, But these conflicts take place amongst the people in another sense, in the media. 
Now, you can take it from me as a theatre commander on more than one occasion that being a theatre commander in these wars amongst the people is like being the producer of some gladiatorial contest in some Roman circus all those centuries ago. (coughs) Except that, down there in the pit with you, in the sand and the dirt, is at least one other producer with at least one other group of gladiators, and they've got a different script. And your business is to produce the most compelling story. Because all around you, in the stands of this amphitheatre, is a highly factional audience who pays attention to what's going on in the pit by looking at where it's noisiest, by peering down the drinking straw of their Coca-Cola tin. And that is how they form an understanding of what is happening. And remember what I said your business was as that theatre commander. You have to write and tell and act the most compelling story. And if you do, you win. Think back to last year. In any material terms... Hezbollah was given a right hiding over by their own admission over a, they had 30% casualties to their dead to their fighting they lost all their smart equipment they admit to it they are apologizing to the Lebanese people for what has happened they have lost the capacity to operate over the Israel-Lebanese border, mainly because there is now a guaranteed buffer zone between them, but also they have been driven north. And yet, across the cover of the first issue of The Economist in September, Nasrallah wins. The Arab street thought they'd won, and more importantly... Israel thought they'd won. So how did they win? They won because that organisation, with uncommon discipline for such an organisation, told the best story. And acted the best story. And they won. That's war amongst the people. The next characteristic is that these confrontations and conflicts are timeless. As I explained earlier, in industrial war, we fought to win and win quick. In wars amongst the people, time isn't in the equation. There's various reasons for this. The basic tactic is only to engage on one's own terms. When it's right for me, 
when I can do this to advantage, safely. Not to some staff officer's programme. Not to some demand that it's to be over by Christmas. And the second reason is that we're not using force to solve the confrontation. We're using force to create a condition. And if you've established that condition, you've got to maintain it until those other means resolve the confrontation to advantage. And the longer we, ha- we fail to find a way of handling this as a whole and only think of this in a linear fashion, the longer we will sit in Korea, in Cyprus, in Lebanon, and dare I say it, Iraq and Afghanistan. Because you've got to leave your military there to sustain the condition. If you wish to have that confrontation, go your way. To remove the military is to accept defeat. The fifth trend is that we fight to preserve the force. Now, no commander wants any more casualties uh, than he must uh, than he, than, uh, suffer than he has to. But in industrial war, it was in the main possible to replace your losses. In my arrogance, I believe that I am the first British commander since uh, Wellington to have actually had to sit and consider how to fight my force so as to bring it back. In 1990 and 91, I had every serviceable tank engine and almost every serviceable helicopter engine in the service and quite a few other things as well. And the Queen wanted her train set back. And all sorts of people came to see me and they weren't remotely interested in anything but whether they could have the train set back. I had it all. And I knew that there was no industrial capacity, whether you talk of the depots full of men or the industrial base, to replace it. And by the way, there isn't one in America either. That isn't the only reason. What sometimes calls the body bag effect is another. (coughs) No politician uncertain of support at home wishes to have more evidence of the erosion of will and so forth than he absolutely has to. And he's not wrong either. And we fight not to preserve the force because we are not using force decisively. We are not using force strategically. We have to maintain the condition. So the structure of your forces, the way you think about your forces, isn't to mobilise to produce the greatest mass at the time. It is to organise yourself 
to sustain the operation over a very long time. And we are not very well suited to doing that. Because we forget the Rupert Smith's underpants rule, which is that at a minimum, you need one on, one in the wash, and one in reserve. And we all know that actually the factor is probably a little higher than three. And let's assume it's three. So if you're going to enter an operation that you think you're good for 10,000 men, then you've just earmarked on your manpower account 30,000 men for the foreseeable future. Just add up where the United Kingdom is now. And even if you multiply by three, it's an extremely uncomfortable figure. And I can tell you that the actual factor is rather closer to five to take account of comings and goings and sickness and promotions and courses and training and all the other things. And the sixth and final trend is that we are not employing our equipments and our organisations for the purpose we purchased them or designed them. In the whole of my nearly 40 years of service, and with the exception of the rifle, the machine gun and the hand grenade, I don't think I have used a single piece of equipment for the purpose for which it was purchased. I have certainly not fought in any organisation I have trained with until going on that operation. Now, if that doesn't tell you that we are doing one thing over here and then doing something else over here, I don't know what does. Now, I am not suggesting that a commander should not adapt his forces to his circumstances. Of course he should. I am talking about the institution. And what is happening is that our opponents are deliberately operating below the threshold of the utility of our forces as we would wish to use them. And he should, shouldn't he? He is a thinking, sentient being. He is with his own will and his own purpose. Why should he cooperate with us? And this means that every war engagement or whatever we care to call it is going to be unique. And you're going to have to decide the mix, nature and structures for that engagement. And you're going to have to decide it for its uniqueness because you don't do it as a state. So in every case there's another collection of alliance and so forth. And we've got to get our tiny little institutional minds around this idea or we will continue to fail. So in the last few minutes, what is to be done? Well, I hope I've flagged it up. We've got to change the way we think about the use of military force. To recognise the change in paradigm and that our institutional mindsets developed and honed during nearly 150 years of industrial war needs to change. Force has utility, for goodness sake. 
We know it. If it doesn't, why are we not so concerned by terrorism, uh, the spread of nuclear weapons, warlords, ethnic cleansing, and so forth? Why is it that our opponents appear to understand the utility of force better than we do? We need to start by respecting our opponents as thinking, capable people who are not operating to the same logic as us, who have an outcome they wish to achieve and the will to achieve it. We don't have to agree with our opponent, we don't have to like our opponent, but as any of you who've entered a boxing ring, you jolly well and you want to have any success in it, you respect your opponent as an opponent in that ring. And it's time we did it, instead of treating them as an item or an icon on some map or screen. We must recognise that our strategic objective is to win the will of the people. It is not the tactical defeat of the opponent. Force must be used with a in conjunction with other means so as to defeat our enemies and to gain our advantage in the confrontation. Each fight won must contribute to achieving, however indirectly, the confrontational goal. Winning a conflict or fight without being able to exploit the result to advantage is an operational or strategic error, which, if repeated, can lead to the phenomena of winning every engagement and losing the war. Like the Rhodesians in the 70s, or America in Vietnam, or Israel last year. <coughs> we need to operate so that the logical linkage between our outcome and our actions is strong and secure, and that we dictate the narrative and we dislocate our opponent's actions from his objective. We must recognise that information is the currency of these engagements, and while far power is the currency of the fight or battle, battles must be chosen and conducted for the information we gain and impart. Remember my theatre. You are telling a story. You are acting a drama. That's what wins the crowd. We must put information out. We must capture the narrative. We must understand the theatre of operations as a theatre. And we must explain ourselves to the people in the theatre. And that includes those at home. For... The theatre is a virtual theatre. Remember, I said it was in the media. The media is the platform and the means of communication of this theatre. Until we do this and adapt our institutions accordingly and shift from the model of industrial war to the wars amongst the people, at the political and strategic levels, and we think about the use of military force accordingly, we will not change our institutions so as to be able to achieve our purpose in this world of continual confrontations 
in which conflicts nest and we live in today. Thank you very much indeed.